books on books on the brain <laughs> welcome back to books on the brain a podcast of books and nonsense i'm carly i'm danielle and i'm deirdre hello we're back we're back with another episode we are it's pretty exciting it is exciting i'm pretty excited to be here me too. Me too. Me three. And I think we are finally announcing this is our second to last episode of season one. <laughs> <laughs> season one will be coming to an end very soon. The three of us need just an itty bitty break. Just a small one. Um, because yeah. we have had a blast this last year. Um but, you know, life happens, and people need breaks from stuff. You know, people take vacations from work. <laughs> we need a, a mini vacation from the podcast. But yeah. uh, we'll talk more about what that means next week in our final episode of the season. Don't you worry. Uh, you can follow us on our Instagram at Books on the Brain Pod to stay the most up-to-date on everything. That's when you know when we'll be back. Uh, but don't worry. You still have one more episode after this one. Mm-hmm. So don't, don't worry. I, I hear some I hear some people worrying, but don't worry, man. It's gonna be okay. <laughs> How's everybody doing today? What's going on? This week it's just been a long week. Like mm-hmm. it yeah, like it's just a long week. Mm-hmm. That's what this week is. <laughs> I'm taking I'm taking an acting class this semester. Um it's an upper level acting course. So we're doing, it's called the Meisner Technique. It's by this guy named Meisner who made a technique. And he said, do it. And we said, okay, we're doing it. Um, but every class, I'm like scream sobbing for multiple, <laughs> like, because it's just like emotional exploration mm. uh, or getting myself to like incredibly panic state so i leave the class and like my little mask has mascara stains and i'm like walking to my next class like hello so i get home and i'm like i'm like physically tired emotionally tired and then my little cats look at me and then i'm like i need to be a mom i need to be a mom right now too being a single mom is so hard uh that's what my my single mom who works two jobs there you go i do love my kids uh, how about you, Carly? I'm stressed. I'm a little stressed. I uh, got in... I haven't said on the podcast yet. I got into uh, basically like my dream university. I'm excited, but I'm also very stressed because I have to move and there's a whole fairy. It's I'm moving to an island um, and I have to... My mom's not going to be even here when I move, so I have to figure out moving oh. um, all by myself. Uh, a little, oh, wow. A little nervous, a little scared. It's okay. Um, I also have to sell my car and get another car. Uh, I just got an email about course selection, so that's good. Me too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, but I don't know. I'm just like, I'm like, I like, I love, I, like, I, uh, I'm excited, mm-hmm. um, but I also hate change, which is... Oh, Yeah. You know, so like, like, I don't know, like, I feel like I've just gotten my room the way I wanted it. And now I have to find a place to live. That's another mm-hmm. thing. I don't know where I'm going to be living. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just, I'm a, I'm, a little, I'm a little stressed, but it's okay. It's okay. We're, we're, we're making strides. So. 
Heck yeah. Yeah. How what are about you, Deirdre? Deirdre? Oh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I saw Moulin Rouge. So, yeah, if you're listening to this episode, it is November when you're listening to it. So if you follow me on Instagram, I obviously went to go see Moulin Rouge in the middle of October. Um, And I won't say anything about the show, but it was really exciting and emotional to be back in a theater. I went with Alexa, um, who's like my Broadway buddy. We've seen a ton of shows together, which was really exciting. Um, And there was like mixed emotions like I was super excited to be there it's a show I really wanted to see but also I was packed we're like you're packed in like sardines right into these theaters and they have opened at max capacity there is no trying to space people out in these theaters you are allowed to buy food and drinks and they don't have designated eating and drinking areas you are allowed to bring stuff to your seats because you are supposed to be fully vaccinated um so I guess the thought being if everybody's vaccinated everybody should be okay to do this if majority is wearing masks most of the time so it was a little anxiety inducing I'm not gonna lie I don't know that I will be going back into a situation like that for a while as much as I want to like I want to go see shows that are open especially since I'm not working and I have not a ton of flexibility but like a little flexibility with my schedule right now so um yeah just many many feelings and emotions this week oh boy boy do we have an episode planned for you folks let me tell you what we are back with another book report these are so fun i'm so excited (laughs) Um, i really like doing i love doing these they make me feel smart (laughs) <laughs> even though it's oh i can't wait for mine oh my god i'm uh, excited i really said in the chat today i was like i'm gonna find something funny and then proceeded to find something not funny <laughs> 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 i mean it's it's funny in a context i guess but oh a little sneak peek i suppose um do we want to jump in or do, <laughs> jump into this or how we feel? yeah let's do it cool who wants to go first this week <laughs> I can do it. We could do our same order. Great. Let's do it. Oh, I'm excited. Ooh, I'm going to kick us off. I do not have a title for this, so if someone comes up with one after, let me know. Um, so I'm going to just start off talking about agency model versus wholesale when it comes to book selling. And oh. I know you're like, Deirdre, what the hell? Educate me, <laughs> so, please. So get ready for just a little a little his, a little lesson, okay? Take some notes. So the agency model is a pricing system for books. Publishers set the price and distributors like Amazon get a fee from the publishers on every book sold that is about 30%. Whoa. The wholesale model mm-hmm. The wholesale model is traditionally for print books where the publisher sells books to the distributor at a set price, usually 50% of retail, and the distributor sells the price to the public at whatever price the distributor wants to. Gotcha. So what? (laughs) Why did I give you this little (laughs) info dump? In 2011 and 2012, so 10 years ago, Amazon controlled 70% of the market share for ebook sales. And today, that percentage has risen, 
with Amazon being the dominant U.S. ebook retailer, accounting for 76% of oh. digital books sold in the U.S. in September of 2020, Whoa. according to Codex Group LLC. Yes. Jeffrey Bezos. Ugh. Yes. So, back in 2010-2011, Amazon wanted to employ the wholesale model for the ebooks they sold. Theoretically, they would pay publishers a set price, about half the retail price for the ebook, then sell the ebook for whatever amount they like. Amazon could choose to sell the ebook for less than they paid the publisher for it. And obviously, we all know now that that's what they do. And it's at a point where they are losing money on sales because they have gained a customer base because of their price point. Gotcha. Then you add in Kindle, which launched in 2007 and is the largest ebook delivery method hmm. and has increased Amazon's market share. So, before I get into the nitty gritty, I'm gonna go off on a teeny itty bitty tangent um, just to say that it's important to note that libraries at this time um, and still are fighting for the rights to make ebooks available to their patrons um, and that could be covered in a whole book report on its own which is why I'm not covering it uh, but I did want to include this little insert because at the time when all this stuff I'm about to talk about was happening, libraries were also being affected and trying to have input into the conversation. Um, and they are very much affected by the business models used for selling and controlling ebooks. So back in 2010, we had the big six publishers, which are now the big five. Um, and so five of the big six, Penguin, HarperCollins, Simon & Schuster, Hatchet Book Group, and Macmillan, so the only one not included in this was Random House, decided that they only wanted to do business with Amazon if Amazon adopted the agency model. They did not want to do the wholesale method where Amazon could set the price. Um, Several publishers, most notably Macmillan, refused to do business with Amazon until it adopted the agency model. Amazon actually stopped selling Macmillan books, but after losing business, eventually agreed to sell books via the agency model. In 2011, the legality of the agency model was questioned, with a lawsuit eventually being filed by the firm Hagen's Berman, a Seattle-based law firm, against Apple and five of the big six. So again, Hatchet, Penguin, Simon & Schuster, HarperCollins, and Macmillan. The crux of the suit being that Apple, quote, intentionally organized a conspiracy among the publisher defendants to raise ebook prices. A book conspiracy, truly. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so in a lot of the articles I was reading, it was basically like a lot of people were seeing the trend of Amazon sort of becoming a force to be reckoned with within ebook sales. And Apple and Barnes and Noble were trying to compete with them, but it was becoming very difficult. Um, so the case drew more lawsuits from several states and the Department of Justice in the United States, eventually resulting in a decision from the Second Circuit of Appeals, where in 2013, Judge Dennis Cody affirmed that Apple did orchestrate a conspiracy among the publishers to raise ebook prices and it would affect the competitiveness of the market. The Department of Justice supported the Second Circuit of Appeals, stating, quote, the decision confirms that it is unlawful for a company to knowingly participate in a price-fixing conspiracy 
whatever its specific role in the conspiracy or reason for joining it. Because Apple and the defendant publishers sought to eliminate price competition in the sale of ebooks, consumers were forced to pay higher prices for many ebook titles. Um, so the five publishers ended up settling their claims out of court for around $166 million in customer credits, and Apple lost at their trial and paid around $400 million to consumers. So, why am I giving you a history lesson? on ebook selling models and lawsuits. Earlier this year, in January of 2021, Amazon was hit with a lawsuit by the same law firm, Hagen's Berman, accusing the company of colluding with the now big five publishers to restrain price competition in the ebook market. This lawsuit came the day after the Wall Street Journal published an article detailing that Amazon was under investigation from Connecticut regarding their ebook business. The investigation is examining whether Amazon engaged in anti-competitive behavior in the ebook business through its agreements with certain publishers made in 2015. I did not look into this investigation, so it could be closed, it could still be ongoing. I didn't even go down that rabbit hole because getting the history on this lawsuit was enough. Um, so. The complaint from the lawsuit stated that Amazon's agreement with co-conspirators is an unreasonable restraint of trade that prevents competitive pricing and causes plaintiffs and other consumers to overpay when they purchase ebooks from the big five through an ebook retailer that competes with Amazon. The harm persists and will not abate unless Amazon and the big five are stopped. Among the relief requested, the suit seeks monetary reimbursement from consumers who purchased ebooks through Amazon's competitors, damages, and injunctive relief that would require Amazon and the publishers to stop enforcing anti competitive price restraints. So the initial lawsuit was just targeting Amazon, and one month later, the complaint was amended naming the big five publishers. Hatchet, HarperCollins, Macmillan, <laughs> Penguin Random House, and Simon and Schuster as defendants and co-conspirators with Amazon. Oh, the plot thickens. The plot thickens. Specifically, the suit alleges that the use of the quote most favored nations clause in Amazon's contracts with the publishers effectively ensures that Amazon can't be underpriced in the ebook market a, quote, contractual stranglehold that prevents existing retail competitors from expanding their market share and dissuades new competitors from entering the ebook market. It's all a bunch of business stuff, basically. Um, separately, in March, so we're just moving along in 2021, Amazon and the Big Five were also being sued by a bookseller in Chicago, the lawsuit was filed in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York on March 25th of 2021 and states that Amazon colluded with the big five publishers, Hatchet, HarperCollins, Macmillan, Penguin Random House, and Simon & Schuster to restrain competition in the sale of print trade books or non-academic texts such as fiction and nonfiction material. The big five publishers control 80% of the trade book market and Amazon accounts for about half of all books sold, including 90% of all print books sold online. Oh, what a statistic. Holy smokes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Attorneys say these factors and more make this market ripe for price fixing through the highly restrictive most favored nations clauses in their distribution agreements. 
The lawsuit states these anti-competitive provisions fix the wholesale price of books and prevent Amazon's competitors from competing on price or product availability. In early September, however, the plaintiff withdrew the complaint after the defendants demonstrated that there was no factual basis for the plaintiff's core allegation. So because their core allegation was that the Most Favored Nations Clause was in there, they actually showed that their contracts with the publishers did not contain this clause. So the case was on thin ice, forcing the plaintiff to amend the case and recast it as illegal price discrimination under the robinson Patman Act. So as of right now, on September 17th, 2021, Amazon and the Big Five made separate court filings, insisting that there is no evidence of any coordination or agreement among them to fix ebook prices or otherwise restrain competition. They argue that the alleged conspiracy fundamentally makes no sense. The publishers insist that the suit must be tossed because it offers no evidence and no plausible allegations that the publishers communicated or coordinated their activities or contractual agreements with each other. Um, and in January, a um, professor of law and author of the 2019 book United States versus Apple Competition in America told Publishers Weekly that while not implausible, the case against Amazon and the publishers faced serious challenges, including the lack of direct evidence, um, and that the case doesn't really hold up as much as the Apple one did. Um, so as of right now, I don't have any new information. I believe both cases, the one from the Seattle-based law firm and the one, well, I actually think the Seattle-based law firm filed both of them, but the first initial one that was filed in January and then the second one from the Chicago bookseller that was filed in March, I think they are both open. Um, so we'll just have to wait to see what happens. And that's it. That's everything on um, these things in the ebook market. <laughs> wow good job Deirdre great job it all it, it, it's always interesting because I feel like I don't spend a lot of time thinking about like ebook and like I guess ebook sales right like it seems mm, because yeah. it's not tangible I'm like yeah I guess but those are some really astounding numbers like Amazon yeah. absolutely just dominates and that's crazy oh yeah and especially when you think about things like Kindle Unlimited like yeah People are just downloading, downloading, downloading books. Like, they're not even thinking about it, mm-hmm. right? Me, you're talking to me. I'm that person. <laughs> I've probably read this year more Kindle Unlimited books than I have physical books. Because they're easier to read. Yeah. It, like, for me, when I do read, it's easier to read on my Kindle. Uh, but it's crazy. It is crazy. And I know I've talked to... One of my friends has a Kobo. Mm. And um, Alexa has an old Nook. And Alexa's like, I want to stay with Nook. Like, I like it. And I just, like, don't really feel like I need a Kindle. But you can't get Libby hooked up to Nook. Like, there's all these things that Kindle itself has that these other ebook readers don't. And... Um, I remember my um, a lot of people have said about the Kobo that it's just the user interface isn't as nice as yeah. the Kindle is. Can you hook Libby up to Kindle? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, you can have your Libby reads sent to your Kindle. Okay. I yeah. My um, what I've heard of Kindles and like Kobos is like Kobos 
have like they have more like you can put more on them from different mm. avenues um, um whereas kindle it's like mostly just amazon and i guess libby i didn't know that but yeah. yeah i know you can get your libby i don't know which kindles is compatible with that i think there's only mm. some that do it i could be wrong yeah. mm. um but i know you can send ao3 fan fiction to kindles as well oh my god <laughs> oh wow i love that like you can download fan <laughs> I, I haven't but you can and i'm yeah. always like a little shocked that that's allowed because that's like <laughs> absolutely someone else's like not that books aren't someone else's work but like that's someone else's like unpaid work which is interesting that you can have on a personal device in that way yeah so it's one of those things where like amazon really is the dominant yeah figure in the ebook world both as far as e-reader and place of reading and accessing digital material goes and well they have it all figured out right like on my kindle i don't know if it's the same for you currently but like you can hook it up to your Goodreads. So the second that you finish it, it automatically the thing pops up. It's like, give it a reading, give it a review. And then, like, the app store is an interface within the thing. So you, it's not an app, like, the bookstore. So, like, you don't ever have to leave your device because they have so many different applications that just make it so easy that you forget. Yeah. You, it, it makes you, what you oh, said, yeah. Deirdre, it makes you forget what you're actively doing. Yeah. Like, I have the Kindle app. Mm-hmm. Um which is annoying. It's it's good because I don't purchase a lot of my ebooks on <clears throat> Kindle. I like have a bunch from previously and then if something isn't available on my other apps, I have Kindle as an option. Um but on the app, you cannot purchase. So you oh. have to go So if I'm on my yeah. phone, I have to go to Safari, I have to go mm. to Amazon, type in the book, get yep. it sent to my Kindle app, and then I can open it mm-hmm. in the app. Um, but yeah, and that was like one of the biggest reasons why I switched to like an actual Kindle was because I had the Kindle app on my iPad, but um, the like the light of the screen, it, migraines, migraine central. Oh my god, it's I, a lot. So yeah, that's why I switched to a Kindle. But oy, oy, oy. it's always funky hearing about book lawsuits. I'm like. It's funny to right? think that people care that much about books. And I'm like, I guess we care yeah. that much about books. But it's just always <laughs> funny. Right? Yeah. I also think it's interesting, like, with that lawsuit from 10 years ago now, um, the money went back to the consumers. Like, you basically were due whatever because you had had to, or you felt like you had to purchase from other places to get a good deal. Because they were controlling the market. Sneaky, sneaky. Yeah. So, fascinating stuff. Um, I'm sure if you stay up to date on Publishers Weekly, they're kind of where I got a lot of this information. Um, They will probably keep reporting on any um, new lawsuit information. Great job. Danielle, do you want to go next or do you want me to go next? Uh, Do you want to go next? Sure. So, I'm going to be talking about Twilight. (laughs) <laughs> just keep going I'm gonna... it's like a band-aid just ripping off so i'm gonna be talking about twilight and uh the controversy around it specifically about the quillute tribe um mm-hmm. because it's 
something that's important and not a lot of people know about and I think more people need to be talking about it. Um, so you might be asking yourself, if you've been living under a rock the last decade, uh, who is Stephanie Meyer? Stephanie Meyer is the American novelist. Uh, <laughs> she She's best known f- for writing the vampire romance series Twilight, which has sold over 100 million copies and has been translated into 37 different languages. Um, and none of them are good. No. <laughs> you know what I found out? You know what I found out today? Her husband's name is Christian. So. That can't be real. No. Because um, <laughs> no, 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 no. Does that mean E.L. James named yep. her hero? Uh, that's debatable if he's a hero. Mm. <laughs> His Her love interest after Stephanie Meyer's Mormon husband. Yeah. <gasps> what? You want to know the even worse part about all of this? Ugh, tell me right no. now. <laughs> is Stephanie Myers' brother, his name is Jacob. <sighs> you know, Stephanie, I'm talking to you right now because <laughs> I know you're listening. <laughs> it's time to stop, I think. All right, keep going. <laughs> Okay, so, um, what happened? I'm going to tell you what happened. When Stephanie Meyer was writing Twilight, she researched the culture and legends of a Native American tribe for her story. Um, FYI, she's not Native American. Um, she's a white woman. Um, she used her findings from the real life and very small, um, Quileute tribe around the time that she I think um the Twilight was released I think there was 700 there was only 700 members of this tribe so very small um and she used them as inspiration for the Twilight novels and movies but the tribe never received royalties for the franchise's use of their history and mythology um Meyer used the Quileute tribe's actual home location like their actual reservation like the actual location um, in the series, um, use their history, their traditions, but failed to financially compensate the tribe. Um, the books and movies together made roughly $3.5 billion. Um, that is not a real number. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And think of your own personal contribution to that number. And that's so embarrassing. My own personal contribution to that number. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I can fully look at myself and be like, you, you can. I am the problem. (laughs) I am the problem. Yes. So, yeah, basically, when people started to kind of um, find out about this, um, it kind of started, like, sparked a huge debate about the stereotyping of um, Native populations and the the misuse of their cultural heritage for personal profit, which is exactly what happened. That's exactly what Stephanie Meyer did. She literally took this sacred tribe's mythology and just, like, made it her own. They used the Quileute's reservation as a setting, um, specifically in the second book slash movie, where Jacob Black... Um, who, if you didn't know, is the chronic, the chronic third wobbling wheel of the love triangle, um, is portrayed as a member of the tribe along with the rest of his, <laughs> uh, is portrayed as a member of the tribe along with the rest of his wolf pack. Um, 
and I like looked into it because uh, I was like, I wonder where like they filmed it. And I was hoping and praying that they hadn't filmed it on the actual actual reservation. Thankfully, they didn't. They filmed it in Coquitlam, British Columbia, which is like an hour away from me, which is very spooky. Um, doo -doo -doo. The tribe's actual symbology, such as Jacob's tattoo, was used. Um, the tribe noted that the Twilight series made changes to their myths that led many fans to conf this is a new word I learned conflate the real life Quileute with Meyer's fictional counterparts. The myths of the Quileute people don't mention cold ones and rather transforming into wolves. Um, the first two tribe members were transformed into people from wolves, according to the tribe's mythology. Um, and so then this was very interesting. Uh, the tribe tattoo. Um, not only did Meyer make her own alterations to the Quileute history, but also mixed it with that of another tribe for aesthetic effects. In the movies, the members of the wolf pack all share this, a similar tattoo, uh, similar to the Cone's crest, if you will. Um, the tattoo's depiction of the two twinned wolves, one to represent strength and one to embody solidarity, is accurate to the Quileute story. However, the tattoo in the movies was designed by a non-native artist who borrowed the art style from a different tribe, the Haida Nation, which is uh, indigenous to the coast of British Columbia. Um, again, the Quileute tribe received no compensation for the tattoo design, despite it literally being based on their oral legend, um, as well as the mixing of the two as well as That's the mixing of the two tribes' styles and histories, further prove the misconception and stereotyping of native populations that was yeah that's so icky Ooh. i hate everything about that yeah i would I also everything just about it. i would like to say for the record and this is backtracking a little bit but when you called uh jacob black the wobbly third wheel or what was it what'd you say the, the, the chronic, chronic wobbly third wheel uh i would like to put a little asterisk that says also he had a really really bad wig <laughs> just i just wanted to throw that out there Yes, uh, I agree. I agree. Okay. Um, but yeah, basically, like, it just proves the misconception of stereotyping of Native populations by the Twilight franchise. Like, like just the Twilight franchise. There's, obviously, this happens in everyday um, media and everything, but just the Twilight franchise alone has done, like, so much harm to this tribe. So, uh, I... <laughs> um, I got most of my findings... Where did it go? I did a lot of reading on this from um, Screen Rant. The article is called Twilight's Quileute Controversy Explained by Cathal Gunning, who does an excel excellent job at um, outlining everything. Um, and in it, they talk more about like what the Quileute's problem with Twilight was more directly, like what actually, like all this other stuff obviously impacted them, but like this is kind of like at the core, like where like the hurt is coming from, from the community. The Burke Museum is an online resource that has dedicated its site to separating the Quileute's, uh, the Quileute reality from Twilight fiction and like what they actually are. Um, they note that the werewolves in Twilight are highly over-sexualized compared to the origin, the original mythology of this tribe. Um, the werewolves are depicted as quote unquote aggressive meatheads. Um, which is an actual criticism that occurs a lot throughout depictions of Native Americans. A lot of people in the wolf pack are 
presented as hot-headed and hyper-masculine and compared to the classy Cullens who have this family dynamic that is very tight-knit, very respectable, very like, you know, they're in this perfect little box. Um, they're like a brood of vampires who maintain a stable family and a nice home um, despite being mythical bloodsuckers. Um, whereas Jacob struggles with his hot-headedness yet his white counterpart can remain cool and calm and collected. Um, also brings up the fact that Jacob comes from poverty and a broken home, which also plays into um, stereotyping of Native American people. Um, boop, 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 boop. And then the article uh, wraps up um, with this really great little thing that I'm going to read. Um, it says, although the Twilight series made millions on official tie-in merchandise, they weren't legally required to offer the Quileute people anything and opted not to. The profits could have made a big difference to the tiny community then roughly two, or sorry, roughly 700 strong. Now I believe they're up to 2,000, which is great. Um, but there was little the tribe could do beyond petitioning people to visit the reservations to, and support them. For a brief period, the tribe's fame provided a revenue stream for the small nation, but this soon died down when the public's fascination with the Twilight series dried up. Now Twilight is a fondly remembered fad. Um, however, while Meyer and the movie series producers made millions from the phenomenon, none of this money was ever... None of this money ever made its way to the group whose mythology supposedly inspired a huge chunk of the series. The Twilight movies did spark some interest in the Quileute culture and gave the tribe's members an opportunity to talk about issues issues affecting the nation as they exist today, but it's a far cry from what they were owed when the series was such a huge, successful franchise. Um, this is just another sad example of... This is just another example of the sad tradition of white artists appropriating other cultures for the sake of their own art and profiting greatly for it. I also wanted to bring up that this passage that I found on good old Twitter, um, it's an excerpt from the books and it says, I have to say, I'm thoroughly impressed with Jacob right now, Edward told me. The wolves made, the wolves make quite an impact, don't they? That's not what I mean. Not once today did he think about the fact that according to Nahul, Nessie will be fully matured in six and a half years. I considered that for a minute. He doesn't see her that way. He's not in a hurry for her to grow up. He just wants her to be happy. So Edward was implying that Jacob was seeing their daughter in a sexual way, which is a very gross thing. Um, child predator type of thing it just like further proves that like the Cullens see these people as less than um there's that and then uh while I was doing on and my... that Stephanie sees them that way too yeah well exactly right? yeah and I think like that's like the biggest thing is like that is how like Stephanie's viewpoint of indigenous people is so apparent um and then while I was doing my recent research, um, I came across the Quileute tribe move to higher ground um, mm -hmm. donation. Um, so precariously located in a tsunami zone at, sorry, this is me uh, plugging something you should definitely donate to, <laughs> especially if you've bought um, Twilight books in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, precariously located in the tsunami zone at the edge of the Pacific Ocean, 
um, the survival of an entire people are at risk. Living in a tsunami zone at the edge of the Pacific Ocean, a catastrophic earthquake can wipe out our community in less than 10 minutes. An entire generation of the Quileute people will cease to exist. Even lives, everyone's lives on this earth, each a member, whoa, hold up. Everyone lives on this earth, each a member of a bigger tribe, a wider community, and we need your help to move our tribal community to a disaster zone to a safer and better higher ground. Um, the Quileute Tribal School is the only one in the world that teaches our own unique language and culture. Perched just beside the ocean, its breathtaking views are enough to inspire our Quileute children to discover more about our ancestral village and rich heritage. If we lose it to a horrific tsunami on a school day, we lose everything, our children's lives and our culture's future. Um, so in the show notes, we will be linking um, where you can donate because it's very important to help these people, um, especially after not receiving any compensation for any of this. Um, but yeah, that's, that's that. <laughs> Great job, Carly. Great yeah, job. Great job. Talking about Twilight in this context, which I think is the only context that you should be talking about Twilight and Stephanie Meyer is in a critical context, mm-hmm. uh, makes me furious because she, um, she's just awful. Like, she's an awful yeah. person who, mm. the more and more information that comes out about her and the things that she's said and done, it just, it's awful. And it's- Yes. Yeah. It's, she doesn't even try to hide it, which is not a really, like, horrific thing about it, right? She doesn't feel any Yes. Or doesn't appear to feel like she has remorse for the things that she says and does. Right. Yes, and I forgot to mention this. Um, uh, one of the directors, or someone, someone in the movie franchise suggested. Huh? It's Catherine Catherine Hardrick, right? For the first movie? I'm sorry, you keep talking. Potentially, I I don't know. Um, Had suggested, um, you know, making um, the cast of characters more diverse. And Stephanie said that she would only hire or she would only want a black person in the movies if they were the villain. Yeah, no, Catherine Hard that that was in Catherine Catherine Hardwick. She directed Mm. the first Twilight movie and that's the only one she did. And arguably that's the best one in my opinion. I think it's the most beautiful. Um. Yeah, there's, like, so much online, at this point, not even speculation, it's just truth about how awful she was, and she, because Catherine wanted to cast a majority of POC for the Cullens and for the Swans. She wanted them all to be people of color, uh, because, especially the Cullens are all adopted, they can be people of color, they don't have to be white, uh, and Stephanie was like, no, they're all white, and, like, even ended up like the only people of color in twilight are like laurent who arguably is written as a person of color in the books it's a little bit vague in the books and then a couple of like the friend group people but it's so like it's just not good and yeah like looking at the specific words she chooses to describe the cullens versus the wolves it's like don't like you're she's not even trying to hide how she feels about it and they didn't have to be indigenous. Like, the Jacob Black did not have to be an indigenous character. He could just be a werewolf. It was, like, this weird, like, like making, making indigenous cultures, like, magical. And, like, but appropriating that. And, like, using, like, it's just so weird. It's, like, ugh, it's weird. She's a weird lady. 
I agree. And, like, the copying and pasting, but then, like, cutting and, like, inserting her own stuff. I'm just like, you don't get to, you don't get to do that. Also, I just, like, the fact that it's so specific, like, the, the location, the name, like, it's just so specific to the tribe. I'm like, you really did not go about this the right way. No, and, like... No, because she clearly did research on them that's and then the decided thing. how to change it to fit her narrative. It's That's so problematic to, like, use so much truth about this tribe and then being like, oh, but they're werewolves and they have a feud with vampires. Because it, it completely and undermines... And they're going to get no compensation. Yeah, it completely undermines all of their indigenous ways of knowing and all of the things that their myths and their stories. And it's just yeah. like, come on, lady, enough. Yeah, um, the BerkMuseum.org, uh, they have a great article called Truth versus Twilight, and it kind of has in their own words um, what they think about everything, and I highly suggest everyone go take a look at it, because it's a great, great little article. Great job, Carly. Thanks. Job. Sorry for the downer. <laughs> That's okay. Well, great job, Carly. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> here we go. <sighs> Oh boy, this is crazy. Let me tell you what. Uh, this story is called "Why the F- <laughs> Would You Write a Novel About a Murder That You May or May Not Have Committed After You Do Not Get Convicted of It." Why? Why would you do that? That's, That's what the story question. is called. That's a good question. <laughs> If you could not tell by that very long, multiple comma uh, title, this is the story of the time O.J. Simpson, and here's the thing, it's, he obviously did not write this, it was ghost written like, through interviews with him. Uh, mm. This man cannot string a sentence together. I do not think he wrote this novel <laughs> in the nicest way possible, peace and love only. Um, but... <laughs> He, uh, he, okay, I'm gonna, so here, it's a couple parts. Part one, I tell you what he, O.J. Simpson did, because I'm Canadian, so I don't know too much. Literally. This happened 26 years ago, was when I was born, so I peripherally mm. know about it. It was that long I think ago? that was when he was acquitted. That yeah. wasn't even when it happened. It was, like, in, like, 1994, I think is when it happened. Mm-hmm. We'll get to it. Uh, <laughs> um... So this is an article on ABC News by Emily Shapiro. Shapiro. Yeah. Oh, hopefully no relation. Hopefully. <laughs> uh, to the other Shapiro. Ben Shapiro. Um, uh, just, this is a basic timeline. So this is pretty much word for word what this article says. I want to say that for the record because it's just information. Hmm. Uh, great. So uh, didn't know that. I don't know a lot of things. This is embarrassing. Uh, he was a football star. You're just nodding very slowly at me, and I'm so embarrassed. Uh, so he did football, and then he did football professionally in mm-hmm. the NFL. Okay. And he was pretty good at it. <laughs> These photos, he looks pretty athletic. So he looks pretty good. <laughs> Uh, and then he said... A bookworm comments on a <laughs> Yeah, your legs look like they're in motion. Good job. <laughs> Guys, it's been a long week. Uh, Okay, so then he says, "Mm." (laughs) Carly, Uh, he says, no, 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 no. I have 
athletic to my last thing. No more. I'm going to the big pictures. The Hollywood to do the movies. And then he does. And he does a couple movies. Good for him. Uh, well, not good for him. I don't like him. Uh, so then he he had a wife, and then uh, he got divorced from her. Her name was Marjorie. And then he meets Nicole Brown in 1985, and he has two children, I think, with her. Yes, with her. Named Sydney and Justin. <sighs> Good names. Um, and then they get divorced in 1992. And then in 1994, June 12th, this is important, June 12th, 1994, Brown Simpson, so the wife, and her family were having dinner at this restaurant in Los Angeles. And then their waiter, Ron Goldman, went to, <laughs> this is, it's, it's a weird case, uh, mm. goes to Brown Simpson's house to return glasses that her mother had left behind at the restaurant. To Nicole's house. Yeah. Okay. That's what it says. <laughs> and then you keep around Brown Simpson, so it's her, her hyphenated name. Mm-hmm. Her hyphenated mm-hmm. name is Brown Simpson. Um. But they don't have. Yeah. Just you know. Yeah. No, I'm just making sure. I'm just no, 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 sure. no, no. Thank you, thank you for clarifying. I bet other people would have the same question. Um. So around midnight, Brown Simpson and Goldman. So the wife. And the waiter were found stabbed to death mm. in her home. And ex-wife at this point. Yes, thank you, ex-wife. Uh, and then Simpson, not Brown Simpson, the boy, the man, Simpson, O.J. Simpson. He was in Los Angeles on that evening, the 12th, but then took a flight that same night to Chicago, like late. Mm. And then he returns to L.A. the next day. A little suspicious. Where are you going for one night, buddy? Um, and then... He, very much but then he was he was interviewed by police and they were like we're not gonna arrest you right away (laughs) and then classic the notoriously slowest high-speed chase (laughs) in history (laughs) this man if you watch the video of this high-speed high-speed chase i'm using air quotes because this man is obeying every traffic law in this high-speed chase he is consciously like uh it's slow it is embarrassingly slow uh if you're gonna do it do it man don't half ass it if you're gonna if you're gonna evade arrest really put your put your whole foot into it um so basically so on the 12th is when this happened and then on the 17th so this is like only a few days apart days just truly days uh, they're basically like, OJ, man, you gotta surrender. And he was like, no, 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 I'm not gonna do it. So he gets in his white Ford Bronco and says, room, room, I'm going. <laughs> and the police are like, Slowly. <laughs> hey, pull over. They can like stick their head, they don't actually do this. They can like stick their little heads out of the window and be like, OJ, pull over. They can get out of the car and walk beside it and be like, buddy, pull over. That's <laughs> 100% that's how slow he's going. <laughs> Um, and so oh, the, basically all these freeways are, like, people can't go anywhere because there's this chase happening. Uh, and then apparently 95 million people watched it on their television. Oh, wow. Good for oh, them. Oh, yeah. Good for them. Uh, and then. The it, whole OJ case, like, yeah. everything about it captured America. It's so strange. Because I literally, I like. like I know very, very little information about what happened. I know, like, bare minimum. Mm-hmm. Bare minimum. 
Um, so eventually they, he, he surrenders and then they arrest him. And then a year later ish in 1995, that's when this trial happens. Mm. And he claimed he was wrongfully accused. Prosecutors argued that Simpson was a controlling husband who abused Brown Simpson. Uh, they also said that there was blood from the crime scene found in his car and his home. Oh. And the fact that he was unaccounted for for more than an hour on the night of the killings. And then, this is, like, probably the most infamous part of this trial, was when the prosecutor asked Simpson to put on gloves that they believed that were worn by the killer, but they didn't appear to fit properly. And so then, defense attorney Johnny Cochran, maybe, Mm -hmm. he famously told the jury in his closing argument, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. It rhymes. Rhyming couplets. Very compelling. Um, and then in October 3rd of 1995, he was he was acquitted of all criminal charges. And he also maintained his innocence. And then two years later, a civil jury found him liable for wrongful death in the double murder. So he was ordered to pay $33.5 million in damages to the Brown and Goldman families. So that all happens. I'm going to do a full timeline, and then we're going to go back specifically to the book. It's just this other stuff's crazy, man. Uh, so then... <laughs> no, has, it's it's wild. It's... It, 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 he just could have stopped there, but he was like, no. Uh, so he gets... He has to pay this money. Okay, so then in 2007, in September, Simpson led a group of men into a Las Vegas hotel and casino to steal what he claims was his own sports memorabilia at gunpoint. He was charged with a number of felony counts, including kidnapping and armed robbery. And then, in, yeah, so, this, like, so he gets off. He literally gets, allegedly, he gets away with murder. Um, and this it's is the I'm most... not laughing that he no, allegedly no, 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 got away with murder. No, 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 but... no, no, no. Um, this is potentially the most, like... It's not allegedly, but it's allegedly, allegedly, I say, but allegedly for for... Uh, I don't know, for whose sake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. (laughs) I don't think he's gonna sue me. Come (laughs) after me, man. Um, please don't. (laughs) He got away with murder twice. I don't want to be a third. Um, okay, so 2008, he was found guilty for the botched robbery, and he was sentenced to up to 33 years in prison. And that's kind of, like, this started to bring him back into the news. Like, the book came out between... 1995 or 1997 and then 2000 i think it was in 2006 the book came out but didn't come out um so this really brought him back into the public sphere and then uh this is badass judge jackie glass prepared to sentence him and she said to simpson earlier in this case at the bail hearing i asked i said to mr simpson i didn't know if he was arrogant or ignorant or both and during the trial and through the proceedings, I got this answer, and it was both. <gasps> oh! Go, Jackie! Dang. Um, and then she goes on to got say, <laughs> she says, uh, that was not a, oh, just give me my stuff back. I want my stuff. That was, nobody leave the room. That was actually a very violent event. At least one gun was drawn. The potential for harm to occur in that room was tremendous. When you take a gun with you and you take men with you to show in a show of force that it's not just a, hey, give me my stuff back. 
to show it's not just, hey, giving your stuff back. I can't ignore that behavior. At the time, on September 13th was reckless. The law was broken. And then he's like, I didn't know it was illegal. Shut up. You fucking idiot. You didn't, you didn't know holding people at gunpoint was illegal? Okay, OJ. Whatever, man. Uh, he was sent to prison. And then in 2013, he bid for a new trial. His bid for a new trial was rejected. Good. But he was granted parole that same Ugh. year based on good behavior. So he went in. In, he got convicted in 2008, and he got out in 2013. So just about five years. Oh, oopsie, I lied to you. I should have kept reading. Uh, he wasn't released from prison at that time because his sentences were set to run consecutively, not concurrently. Mm. So he had to wait in 2017 to appear against the parole board. And then he got parole in 2017, so he was in prison for... Mm, Nine years. Mm, good. <laughs> um, and then he basically goes on to say, like why i did it <laughs> which not good reasons he's like i just wanted my stuff back no he you know he, he, he got away with murder so he was thinking i can get away with anything that allegedly, allegedly sorry he really was like icarus he's like I, I i maybe did it once maybe i can do it again yeah um and then he now is a free man he <laughs> his attorney says well, he wants to enjoy the very simple pleasures that he hasn't enjoyed in nine years. Um, in the last sentence... Oh, you mean the simple pleasures us people that are not committing crimes get yeah. to have? Yeah, yeah. One... <laughs> Whoa, sorry, buddy. <laughs> you get the simple pleasures. <laughs> um, so Simpson... This is the last article. So he's 74 now. He oh, lives God. in Las Vegas. Uh, Simpson is active on Twitter and has commented on recent events, including the Capitol riots and the Derek Chauvin case. Trial. Oh. <laughs> the two things oh that they could have him say that he commented on. Jeez Louise. Okay, and you could, you're thinking to yourself right now, Danielle, this isn't history class. Why are you telling me this? And I say, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Context. This is what I'm here to tell you about. Um, in 2006, there was a infamous interview conducted between Simpson and the publisher Judith Reagan about what hypothetically happened on June 12th of 1994, which was the night of the double murders. Mm. So these tapes were, like, buried, and then recently, uh, not recently, I think it was in 2016 they got put out, but basically this was Mm -hmm. an interview that was paired with the publishing of this book Mm -hmm. called if I did it. Oh my god. The full title, wait, I have to find Stop. So the full title of there's two titles. There's the title that it originally was, and then the title that it ended up being published as. Let me find the original one. Um it was long too. Hold on. Oh yeah, because so it's called it was called OJ Simpson. If I did it, here's how it happened. Oh my god. Uh, Hello? What? Why? What? That <laughs> A lot of questions. I, speechless. I'm a lot of I, questions. Mm, that's just some cockiness at its oh, finest. Oh, just wait. Oh, just wait. Oh, no. Uh, so, was he, how involved was he in the publishing of this So, this, this is interesting. So, um, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Okay, great. So, okay, great. he was, so basically, it was a book by Simpson that this this um, publisher, Judith 
Reagan had commissioned from her HarperCollins imprint Reagan's books. Okay. So she was like the founder of this imprint through HarperCollins. Um, and basically this interview happened as a like promotional thing for the book. Then they were, it was announced in November of 2006 and people were pissed. Obviously people were pissed. People were like, why are you promoting this criminal for his wrongdoings that not only are just like morally wrong, whether if they were fiction, but this is like commenting on a real event and like turning it into fiction mm-hmm. through the eyes of the man who allegedly did it. Like it's just weird. Like it's a weird concept of a book. Um and so Denise Brown, who's Nicole Brown's sister, spoke out a lot during this time. And she said, We hope Mrs. Reagan takes full accountability for promoting the wrongdoings of criminals and leveraging this forum and the actions of Simpson to commercializing abuse. Mm. And then family of Ron Goldman, who was the waiter who was also murder, said basically the same thing and said this was an all-time low for television, referencing the interview. Um, there was a petition started online to boycott the book and the show. A lot of people obviously got behind it. People did not want to read this book no. uh, or support this man. And then it comes down. So Christopher John Farley, the editor of the Wall Street Journal at the time, said that it hadn't been adequately explained how Simpson was published profiting off this book. Reagan, for her part, said she did not pay Simpson for the interview and and the book, despite reports that he got as much as $3.5 million for it. So Reagan says that he did not get paid, but apparently he did get paid $3.5 million for the book. In 2006, remember, this is 2006. That's a lot of money. Oh my god. So then it calls into question of, like, if he didn't get paid to do it, and he's not getting paid for it, what is he gaining? Like, obviously, I feel like he did get paid, and they were just really trying to make it seem like he wasn't getting paid for it. Um... Mm. And then Reagan's, and this is the part where I'm like, what are you doing? She says, this is a historic case, and I consider this his confession. So she decided to publish this book to sit face to face with the killer because I wanted him and the men who broke my heart and your hearts to tell the truth and confess their sins, to do penance and amend their lives. So she thought she was doing a good thing by doing this. She thought she was doing God's work. I got him boys got him sending the fucking police like what (laughs) hello like real i think really misguided like she was really trying to do something but it did not did not happen Mm. um so basically in so all that was happening early on november and then on november 20th things got too bad and they were like we're not publishing it and we're not broadcasting this interview uh basically Mm. all the heads of the company spoke out and were like we're so sorry for the pain we caused we're not gonna put this out um and then Mm. following the news simpson said he would like nothing better than to straighten out some things that have been mischaracterized i think i'm legally muzzled at this point okay Um, So then, in the aftermath, Reagan was fired from HarperCollins and subsequently settled a $10 million (laughs) defamation lawsuit with the News Corporation. 
The book was eventually published with Beaufort Books in 2007, with all proceeds going to the Goldwyn family, which is the family of the waiter who was murdered. Still, uh, so, so he, okay, okay, so here we go a little bit deeper. The plot thickens a little bit. Um, <laughs> the actual book itself is not good. <laughs> like, all of this to be said, the book is not good. The book's pretty bad. Uh, all of this drama and it's like hopefully the book's good at least it's not it's not a good book uh goodreads is sitting at a surprisingly high uh 3.25 um okay and then the so the title it was eventually published under is if i did it confessions of confessions of the killer so the book is credited to be written by oj simpson and pablo f fenjaves I'm sorry. Who was the mm. ghostwriter on it? Ghostwriter, but like mm. not a ghostwriter because we know he wrote it. Um, he. Right. I even think he. Yeah, so eventually it's weird. So he wrote the prologue to this new book. So the ghostwriter wrote the prologue, and then another man, Dominic Dunn, wrote the afterword on it. And then the Goldman family added like commentary through the book as well so it was the original story and then about fourteen thousand words were added to it from what originally was public sent to to the presses that first go around um there's only Mm. about seven thousand ratings and a thousand reviews so (laughs) not a lot of people have read the book which is or at least reviewed it um and the biggest Mm. percentage of star ratings is three stars which is a little interesting in my opinion so I pulled mm-hmm. this, and when I say this is maybe the funniest book review I've ever read in my entire life, um, it was done by this man at Vanity Fair. I have his name, hold on. Uh, his name is James Wolcott. Oh man, this fan's funny. He has got away with words. Got away with words. <laughs> um, I'm gonna read. I love that. A, a chunk of it. Uh, I'll read it quick though, and I might cut some of it, but it's it t- like pulls. It talks specifically about the things in the book, which I think is interesting because, uh, oh no, I'm going to start reading because it's one He says, <clears throat> so here it is, laid out sweet on my desk in living color. O.J. Simpson, <laughs> if I did it, Newsweek, obtained the book's most controversial chapter, but Vanity Fair landed the whole enchilada. <laughs> what to make of it? <laughs> That's the rub. If I did it, a shameless yet ingenious opaque <laughs> cock teaser of a cash-in confessional. <laughs> Who knew a book about double homicide could be so flipping coy? Has none of the creepy ivy and sarcophagus decay of Wilder's classic Hollywood gothic, none of its peekaboo depravity. The Hollywood B-list scene that Simpson bops around in here as former football great and bit actor in the spoofy Naked Gun series is very suburban, very spruce. A brightly maintained semblance of normality packed with normal leisure activities. So basically this book, like, it chronicles his life up into it. So, like, the I think the murder happens in, like, chapter 13 or something. So it's like he, like, tries to, like, do a life story mm. in this book. It's weird. Oh, God. Um, so, <laughs> if I did it, has the smooth, just waxed flow of a ghost-written memoir according to the contract with soon to be shuttered reagan's books the ghost was pablo Fenjes, which we know it is um 
It's all gliding surface and obvious behavior and psychobabbly introspection. After being portrayed as a monster, a murderer, and wife abuser, a charming sociopath, he's here to show you that he's a regular guy who's been given a bum rap. Sure, he has his faults, but who doesn't? Sure, he loses his temper once in a while, like that time he went after Nicole's Mercedes with a baseball bat, but he had good reasons. <laughs> Plenty of times he was provoked, but he never intended to, to hurt anybody. He's not like that. He swear he'd never raised a hand in anger at Nicole, and that if she were alive, she'd tell you the same thing. Well, she's not, buddy. Uh... Um, if anything, she was the one with the temper. That sweet 18-year-old turned into one mean major mood swinger. Bitching about this, whining about that, smacking the help, then wiggling back into his good graces good graces with her feminine wiles. Um, and then, <laughs> oh, sorry, it was chapter 6 is when the murder happens, not 13. I'm crazy. So, chapter 6, the night in question, the memoirs money shot. The reconstruction of the double, double homicide has siphoned through, no, as siphoned through Simpson's hazy recall and his ghostwriter's no, novelish imagination. If I did it, this is how it was done. This chapter proponents to show that just that. It's the evening of June 12th. Simpson has just returned home after his daughter Sydney's recital. Nicole was at the recital wearing a short skirt that was completely taste and age inappropriate for such an occasion. Afterward, he and his sidekick crony, Cato Kalin, um, whose duties were always a trifle vague, had gone to McDonald's, but the burger just didn't sit right. Nicole and her antics were just wearing him thin. He's feeling old, whipped, arthritic, past it. His, his <laughs> athletic friend... Just wearing him out. No, no, his athletic glory going gray. This man's, he's a poet with words, truly. Uh, then, when his moral cannot funk any lower, a casual friend named Charlie pulls up to, at the gate and claims he just had dinner with some guys in Santa Monica and tells OJ that these guys were saying that Nicole had been partying hard and freaky. Some, some pal this guy <laughs> is driving over just to relay some trash he heard. Except the pal apparently doesn't exist. There is no Charlie. He's a concoction, a fictional stooge, a phony accomplice, a bogus bit of poetic license on the ghostwriter's part to set the death trap in motion. Um, oh my one God. One word out of this ventriloquist dummy's mouth, and suddenly the mopey, moody <laughs> Simpson acquires agency, finding his burning focus, and the tempo of the book pace picks up pace, urgency. It has an appointment with death for which it simply cannot dawdle. With a squeamish Charlie at his side squeaking and squawking, Simpson wheels over to Nicole's, slipping on a wool cap and gloves and sliding a limited edition knife. Sorry, it's not funny, but why did they have to say it's limited edition? Sliding a limited edition knife out from under the seat, intending only to give her a nasty scare. Oh, I'd say the odds were on that stack pretty good. Ron Goldman, a waiter at the restaurant where Nicole and her mother had dined that evening, appeared at the back gate to return a pair of glasses to the mother that she had left behind. An errand that the Othelloish Simpson <laughs> thinks is a ruse, a cover for a drug drop-off or an assassination. 
Uh, out the front door flies Nicole in a sexy cocktail dress, sealing her fate. A scene ensues. She sails into Simpson like a banshee. Goldman strikes a karate stance, and Charlie magically, tragically materializes with Simpson's knife. And then the movie screen goes dark as Simpson conveniently blinks out, emerging from a partially perfectly timed coma to find himself painted with blood. The bodies of Nicole and Ron Goldman crumpled at his feet. How'd all this blood hop up in front of his clothes? Why is his knife so bloody? He stands there dumbstruck as if he's just been beamed down from Star Trek and does that none of this is concluded. <laughs> Fans will recognize this gambit as the old film noir pulp novel standby, A Fatal Fugue. The blood-soaked blackout where everything's a blur, a bad dream that turns out to be horribly real, a Kafka-esque hangover where one's hands seem to belong to a stranger and the pounding in one's head is echoed by the police pounding on the door. And then he talks way, 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 way more about it. Um, and then he goes... He wanted his payday. So this is him talking about uh, OJ and what he thought about this. Um, he wanted his payday and it wasn't too particular about it. Was it tacky? Simpson said in a recent interview. Yeah, it was tacky, but it was brought to me. He gave Raven Reagan's book some of what they wanted and the ghostwriter shoveled in the rest. After finishing, if I did it, I didn't feel any inward swelling of moral outrage or righteous disgust. Didn't hatch any profound insights into sex, race, or violence in America. I just wanted everyone connected with it to go away not that they will. Attorney Yale Gallanter is reportedly shopping a new book proposal on Simpson's behalf that promises to be tastefully done. A tastefully done portrait of his marriage to Nicole. The next ghostwriter will have one hell of an uphill climb. Uh, this article is incredibly <laughs> long, but it is funny. If you just look it up on Vanity Fair, it's there. This guy, whew, he's a funny dude. Funny dude. Wow. Um, I just want to read two really quick Goodreads reviews. One, so this is a one-star review <laughs> uh, by Jason. He says, this book will only solidifies anyone's view that OJ is a real double killer. This memoir of sorts is only an important view of a true narcissist in any every sense of the definition. This book seems to be a weak attempt to ease his conscience concerning the murders that night. This book is a prosecutor's dream. It's like putting OJ on the stand and watching him flame out in glorious flash, in glorious fashion. He seems to want to make himself look like a regular guy, but Nicole, the Nicole bashing was just too obvious. She's always the instigator, the initiator, the bipolar one. He states he has his problems, but who doesn't? Um, and then he goes on to say at the very end of the review, uh, OJ's subsequent assault and burglary conviction seems like the long overdue ending to his misplaced 90s trial of the century. And then someone, <laughs> Lenny Hewson, gave it a five stars. And I was like, Lenny, buddy, what? Lenny, what uh, are we doing? And then it says, this is a fucking gem. I literally laughed my ass off. Drop everything you're reading and get to this now. Um... <laughs> this is it meant to be a comedy. <laughs> I think this is supposed to be <laughs> satire, but I could be wrong. Uh, this is the book that OJ dictated to a ghostwriter. The book wasn't published, whatever, whatever, whatever. The book 
is called If I Did It, but Goldman's effectively changed the title to I Did It by making the if very, very small, which it is. Uh, uh. <laughs> it's just pretty funny. <laughs> that makes me giggle. Uh, the book contains the portion dictated by Simpson himself, as well as various supplementary material in the form of commentary from the Goldmans, Dominic Dune, and the original Ghostwriter, and the attorney. Everyone got a little piece of it. Here are some of the best quotes from the book. Hold on to your pants. Or your butt cheeks. Anything. Uh, we were left with a piece of paper that said he owed us $19 million and he went out for cookie dough. That's the Goldman family. That's in the book. Um, <laughs> I didn't think I created a lasting work of art. This is O.J. Simpson's book, after all, and we didn't want him sounding like a third-rate Dostoevsky. I certainly thought it was a compelling read, so the ghostwriter. Um, this is OJ now. There's a, quite a few quotes from here, but they're funny. They're not funny. They're horrific. Uh, did I beat her? No. I never once raised my hand to her. Never once. If Nicole were here, she'd tell you the same thing. Nicole and I were together for 17 years, and we had our share of conflict. But by and large, we were able to work out our differences. How, buddy? Uh, <laughs> uh, you're gorgeous you're smart you got your own money and you don't want any more kids for most guys you're an unbeatable combination oh, oh. boo oh. boo when you're angry you're only hurting yourself life's too short to carry judges grudges you gotta move on okay buddy <laughs> coming from oy, you oy, 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 oy. Uh, This is awful. You better open your eyes, Nicole. Nice people don't go around getting themselves knifed to death. <gasps> knifed to death. Sir! Um, okay, these are no. the last. Uh, the last two. I remember thinking, that woman is gonna be the death of me. A man spends his whole life trying to figure out what it all means. Trying to make sense of this business of living. And in the end... He doesn't understand shit. <laughs> so basically, like at the end of the day, um, and if you have a chance to <laughs> look at the cover, it's pretty funny. So in big red, I'll describe it right now. In big red letters, it says, if I did it, or it says, I did it. And then the tiny little slim part of the eye, it says, if in gray. So it literally looks like it says, oh my I God. did it. Um, you did it. At, at the end of the day, oh. some some amount of good, I guess, did come from this because at least the money of the book sales did go to the family. Um, and, like, people are able to kind of talk openly about the mis potential misjustice of this whole case. But it's just such a weird, like, how absolutely arrogant or incredible incredibly incredibly stupid do you have to be to think that putting out a book like this would be a good idea yeah <laughs> yeah some level of arrogance, arrogance that i will never understand yeah and yes like, the way that he speaks the actual text he thinks he's like helping he's like uh here's a little life lesson for you i'm like nobody wants to learn from you dude <laughs> you have nothing no. to offer no no uh, well, if you want to hear more from OJ, I guess you can follow him on Twitter, but I don't know. There's probably better people to follow. Yeah. I would agree. I would agree. 
Yeah. And that's it. That's yeah. that's the mm. If I Did It Confessions of a Killer by O.J. Simpson. Good, good job, job, Danielle. Thanks. Good that job. was really good. What a 3.25. That's too high. That is too high. <laughs> I can't believe he has a book. It's far too high. I can't believe I didn't really yeah. like it. I feel like I did know, but I like didn't consciously mm. know until I saw... I literally searched up <laughs> what the like timeline of everything. No, just that he wrote a book. Or about like, the book. I, yeah, I didn't real. No, I knew like I know peripherally about obviously the OJ stuff, but like, I think I googled like craziest author stories because I'm like, there's gotta be something there, man. Yeah. Uh, and then this popped up in an article that he had written a book, and I'm like, why would he do this? Like, ah, oh, what a what a. Because he's stupid. At least he's not making any money off of it anymore. Anyway, True. go watch the uh, slowest high-speed chase of all time if you need a little laugh. We're probably gonna watch it tonight. Really slow. <laughs> oh man, who's who's reading a book right now? We did it. I'm not. I so I have two books to um, chat about. One I read recently for school, and I just wanted to give a little plug because I thought people would like it. Uh, and the other I read in September. So. First, it is a nonfiction called When Brooklyn Was Queer by Hugh Ryan, and it is essentially the author wanted to dive into the history of queer Brooklyn because the history of queer New York and especially Manhattan has been heavily detailed, especially with Stonewall, um, but not a lot has gone into researching the history of Brooklyn and the queer community there. Mm. And um, there's there's a lot. Um, and so I am working on my qualifying paper, thesis, dissertation, whatever you want to call it, um, for my master's degree right now. And I'm looking into, um, like, cross-dressing and um, gender impersonators of the late 19th century, early 20th century, and so it crosses into this um, gender queer stuff. Uh, Mm. (laughs) Stuff feels like the wrong word, but um, uh, the first couple chapters were prevalent to my research, um, and it was exciting to read about people in history that were dressing outside of their gender and um Mm. that there was this like queer community in brooklyn in the late 1800s that was there and living and happening that's so cool like there are all these people you know that are like it's it's a trend to be queer like you know this like narrative that it's like a new thing and it's not Mm -hmm. and and i cannot impress upon people how important it is to research queer history and listen to historians that are uh doing the work to unbury these stories um because people have worked too dang hard to make sure that they are not being told um and so when Brooklyn was queer by Hugh Ryan, I highly recommend it. Um, it was and it was a really exciting read. Like it is not a dense read. I, I read the first couple chapters very quickly. Um, 
And the second book that I want to chat about is a fiction book that I read in September called The Charm Offensive by Alison Cochran. Um, and I was very much looking forward to this book. Um, it is a bachelor style dating show and I knew that there was exploration of um, demisexuality and the ace spectrum and so this one was very very high up on my list. Um, and so you have Dev and Charlie. Dev is a um, producer or um, yeah, uh, production assistant, assistant producer, um, something on this bachelor show and he's been doing it for a very long time he loves the idea of love he's loved the show since he was a kid and charlie is the prince coming on as the bachelor and uh dev is usually the handler kind of for the contestants um and not for the bachelor something happens he gets moved around and he is Charlie's guy. And Charlie is a mess. <laughs> and um, he kind of is like a little abrasive to love. And so Dev is kind of helping him figure out how to go on these dates and how to break out of his shell. Um, and Charlie has come on this show because he's a very well-known um, tech kind of wonder kid who um, had a startup and uh, was like a like millionaire, worked with his best friend, and then very publicly was asked to leave the company because he was, quote, difficult to work with. Um, and throughout mm. the book, you come to find out, like, was he difficult to work with or... Um, was he just not public with his own personal stuff? And so people were not willing to um, work with him um, because everybody has bias towards mental health. Um, and the things that the book does really well is it is a great exploration of mental health. There's a lot explored through Dev and a lot explored through Charlie that is very different. Um, and it was really exciting to get like a multifaceted look at mental health and like ways people cope, not great ways people cope, and like the breakdown of that. Um, and then also the exploration of sexuality and romance as spectrums. Like, that is a big part of this book. There's a big exploration of the ace spectrum um, and just talking about romance and sexuality as they are on spectrums. Um, and definitely check the trigger warnings uh, because there's a lot, especially with Charlie's character and with Deb's too, um, especially with the mental health stuff that... Um, I could definitely see being quite um, triggering for people. So I will try to have those in our spreadsheet, which I do need to update. Sorry. Um, anyway, the one drawback for this book that I do feel I need to mention, and I say this with the big asterisks of I am a white lady making this statement. Um, Dev is, I believe, Indian American. And as I was reading the book, it became very apparent to me that not a lot of research had been done into the culture that this character came from 
and there were just things that weren't aligning for me that made me feel like he was made to be of a certain ethnicity just because, um, and that there wasn't actually any flushing out of actually making this character part of that culture. Um, and I did go look at some own voices reviews uh, to make sure that I was not totally off base in thinking this. And, you know, every no one is a monolith, but um, there were several reviews on Goodreads that did call this out as well. Um, so I definitely would say, you know, go into this critically. Um, I don't think this is the best representation of a um, Indian American, uh, and I hope I'm using the correct term and saying that um, main character or interracial relationship because I think there are a lot of things and components missing from Dev's character um, that Allison as a white author just did not capture. Um, but that being said, I did enjoy it as a romance and I think it is a well-written book, but the character is not written well at all. Um, at least mm. in the cultural aspect of, like, who he is. Um, and that is The Charm Offensive. Uh, I've heard so many people talking about loving it. So, um... People were super excited for it to come out, and I was too, because mm -hmm. I love seeing demisexual rep in yes, absolutely. books. Especially in, like, um, new adult and adult romance books absolutely um, because there are there is a lot of like ro like it is a romance book um and the um we do get a little spicy mm -hmm. in this book and that was exciting it, it was exciting to do that exploration which we don't get a lot in romance wow <laughs> I keep seeing it at work and I'm like, I should read it. Deirdre says nothing but good things about it. It's good. But it is not uh, to be looked at without criticism. I will no, say that. Absolutely. I think the, the biggest drawback for, sure. for it is that people aren't talking about the criticism, which is why it's taken me so long because I needed to do my research mm. on it yeah. too. Um, and yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing that diligent research for us much appreciated do you want to go next carly or do you want me to go next oh boy next. all right hold on it's crazy over here i read my first two colleen hoover books wow. i think in september i don't really have concept of time but they're on my good reads <laughs> means i read them um i read both of them in a day not the same day they're both one-day reads for me. Sorry, mm -hmm. that's the correct way to, to say that sentiment. Okay. Um, they were quick reads. They're, they're like, I think they're like 350 pages-ish each. Mm -hmm. They're not, like, huge books. That's usually yeah, average I think she, Yeah, they're both under 400 yeah. pages. Um, so I read It Ends With Us was my first, and then Ugly Love. Kind of, I read them back to back. I read them both on my script app. They were just like promoted books, and I was like, you know what? I will. I've not read a Colleen Hoover book. <laughs> I'll give her a shot. Uh, because her books, if you are on Book Talk, are constantly trending. 
people are constantly reading her yes. books. Uh, a lot of people really enjoy her books, which, good on you if you like them. You like what you <laughs> like as long as you're looking at it critically. Um, mm-hmm. But they were both okay. They were both okay. Mm-hmm. I have personally de- didn't see anything, like, extraordinary in her writing. I also read two books that, like, fall into a weird category of, like, they're not her thriller books and they're not her romance books. They're, like, this, like, high-tension, a little bit of romance books. It's it's a weird, like, like overlap um... area for both of these books. Um, right. So I did pull up the triggers for both of the books because, like, she doesn't joke around. Like, when when she no. when there are the there's unsettling content in her book, she really explores all aspects of it. Uh, so for it ends with mm-hmm. us. There is alcohol abuse, attempted rape, depression, domestic abuse, graphic, and they're not joking. It is graphic and it is multiple times throughout the book to multiple characters, violence and suicide. Um, that, like, people told me about <laughs> the domestic violence and the domestic abuse, and I was like, okay, sure. Uh, but I wish someone had really been like, no, the domestic abuse and violence mm-hmm. in this book. Um, and then Ugly Love, I'd say the biggest ones are child death, sexual content, car accident, and death. Yeah, I think that's pretty much yeah. the big ones. That was like the when I read Ugly Love, the car accident thing that 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 I needed a trigger warning yeah. for that one. It's incredibly um, detailly detailed and over described. I mean, I was in the books. I didn't want to put them down, so that's something. Mm-hmm. That's something. And I'm I'm trying not to be too yeah. critical of her. I feel like I'm coming in with that like bad attitude though it's like if a whole bunch of people like it i'm not gonna like it i'm not gonna be one of those people i'm trying not to do that yeah uh, that's the whole like mm. overhyped books i'm overhyped um <laughs> out of the two i'm preferred it ends with us um which seems mm. weird because it is incredibly graphic i think the way she handles domestic violence and abuse albeit graphic felt like she cared a lot about how it was handled because sometimes you see Mm. topics like that put in books and it feels like it's not handled with care it really felt like colleen handled this topic with care regardless of the graphic Mm. nature of it it is graphic uh she did handle it with care which i do appreciate um the basic premise of this book is lily is this girl and she basically meets this neurosurgeon named Ryle who is like the perfect guy. He is a neurosurgeon. <laughs> he uh, is funny. He's like, they have great chemistry. They meet on a rooftop one night, uh, kind of just by chance. And she, they keep meeting and she can't really like seem to forget him kind of thing um but then Mm. she basically they they start engaging in this relationship and throughout the book we get flashbacks of lily in her like youth when her mother Mm. is 
being abused by her father. And she is living at home. I think she's in high school at this point. And, and this is, oh, this is, this really ages the book. She, the format of the flashbacks are through diary entries. So she, in the present, she's reading her mm. diaries from when she's a kid for this specific period of her life. And she addresses all of the diary entries to Ellen DeGeneres. Ugh. She says, dear Ellen DeGeneres, because she watches Ellen show every day. That's her little bit of happiness as she comes home and watches it after school. Um, oh, and she meets no. a boy named Atlas. Which, like, it's uh, Manic Pixie Dream Boy. and Like, a, a little boy named Atlas. Uh, but he is living in the abandoned house behind her house. So he's homeless. He's in high school. I think he's 18, so he can't go on, like, government-assisted or, like, foster care. He's just aged out. So he's living in this abandoned house, she notices, and she brings him food one night. And she knocks on his little door, and she runs away. She's like, oh, oopsie. Um, and then <laughs> they start to develop this friendship. People at school are mean to him. They say he smells, and he has bad clothes, because they don't know he's homeless. Um, and eventually, Lily and Atlas kind of form this romantic relationship-ish thing he becomes aware of her abuse at home or the abuse uh, going on in her home and um there's one scene near the end particularly where he comes in and actually helps her after something's happened um but basically he leaves to go live with his uncle and he's like if we're meant to be we'll find each other again which you know classic line um and then we know in the present she doesn't have him. She's not with Atlas. She's with Ryle. So we know something's up until one day. Oh, she goes to a restaurant with her mom. Um, and her dad dies. Oh, yeah. That's the beginning of the book. Oh, Danielle. Jesus. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> her dad dies. <laughs> the abusive dad dies at the beginning yeah. of the book. Um, and she goes to the funeral. And that's why she's on the roof. Oh, I read this a month ago. Uh, she's on the roof because she gave an eulogy where she was like, my mom asked me to say all the nice things about my dad. And then she stands silently for two minutes and then sits down. Which I'm like, Lily, whoa, whoa, whoa. But also like, <laughs> cool, but like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, and so, how does that, oh yeah, so her mom, she goes to lunch or dinner with her mom at this new restaurant. Everyone's raving about it. Everyone's like, wow, wow, wow. Um, and it ends up being Atlas's restaurant. So they both made it to Boston where they said they were going to move when they were kids. And now she's like, oh, what are we going to do? Atlas. Oh, but Ryle. Uh, and then Ryle ends up, spoiler alert, a little bit, uh, being an abusive asshole and starts uh, abusing her. And it's like, starts this cycle mm. of like, we know that intergenerational trauma to do with a lot of things, specifically domestic abuse and violence, is cyclical and will continue to happen. And that's why It Ends With Us is titled that way, because uh, Colleen talks about in her author's note how her mother made sure that it ended with her, so she, Colleen would not have that same uh, trauma in hopefully mm. ending that cycle, which makes me like the book more, um, when I found out how brave Colleen was to share that. Um, and yeah, I mean, like... I don't know when this book was written, if I'm being honest. If it's referencing Ellen DeGeneres, 2016. Oh. 
Um, it's a little, little too recent. Uh, but yeah, I think if you were to read one Colleen Hoover book, I think I'd say It Ends With Us is a nice place to start. I don't think... I'm not, like, jumping for joy for people to read Colleen Hoover's books. I think they would be mm. great books for people for book clubs. They would be great books for people getting into reading or getting back into reading. Mm. The writing style is pretty simple. It's not too much or anything. Pretty conversational. But has and addresses themes that makes the books feel a little bit more substantial. Um... Other than that, I had one other thing to say. Oh boy, what was it? What was the thing I was... Oh, yes. Um, Carly and I were talking about this before um, we started recording. But if you're interested in something that does address domestic violence and abuse in a really great way, uh, Netflix just put a show called Made, which is based on a book too. I don't know what the book is, if it's a memoir. It's based on her biography. Yeah, it's it's her, it's a memoir. Um... It's incredibly good. So if you're looking it's for something so good. in that vein that does a really good job of it too, check that out too. Okay, that's it. <laughs> good job, Danielle. Um, I, you know what? I'm going to be fully honest right now. I just took a look at my Goodreads. I haven't read a book since the beginning of that's August. Okay. I'm a I'm a You're poser. Not a poser. I'm, I'm a fake. You're just redirecting your energies <laughs> to other parts of your life that need it right now. It that is so true because I was thinking about it. I'm like, I am, I work full time mm-hmm. and am in a leadership role. So like, yeah, it, it may, and I'm trying to get school going and all these other. And I'm trying to move and anyway, I'm so I, I need to be easier you on myself. Do. But <laughs> thank you. I have hair in my mouth. Um. I decided to pick up The Bone Season today by Samantha Shannon. Bony boy. And I am very excited. <laughs> um, I'm very excited. I saw it on my shelf and I was like, you know what? Let's just do it. Let's just let's just try it. It's about clairv- clairvoyance. Yeah. Clairvoyancy. Ooh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's like different veins, uh, like seven different kinds. And there's a whole legend and it's it's wild. Um, Is The Bone Season about skeletons? It was a joke. It was a Halloween joke. <laughs> it, it did not land. You should have seen both of their faces. They said, no, what? Stupid? <laughs> you both called me stupid with your looks. Um, no. Neither of us have. I haven't even started it. Oh, and, so were you. Uh, yeah. And I own every book in that series. <laughs> oh, wow. I love that. All of them. Um, so if you don't know what it's about, I'm going to read you the little thingy, because I don't even know what it's about, so we're, oh, we're going to find out together. Oh, I hope it's skeletons. The year is 2059. Paige Mahoney? Mahoney? Paige Mahoney is working in the criminal underworld of Skyon, London. Her job is to scout information by breaking into people's minds. For Paige is a dreamwalker, a rare kind of clairvoyant. And under Sky on Law, she commits treason simply by breathing. It is raining the day her life changes forever. Attacked, kidnapped, and drugged, Paige is transported to Oxford, a city kept secret for 200 years, governed by an otherworldly, governed by an otherworldly race called 
the Refame, who seek to control clairvoyance for their own purposes. Paige is assigned to the care of Warden, a powerful Refaint. He is her captor, her trainer, her natural enemy, but if she wants to regain her freedom, she will have to get close she will have to get close to him to learn something of his mind and his own mysterious motives. Yeah. Ooh. I'm very excited. I've heard nothing but good things about it. And I don't know. If, if I, I feel like it's what I need right now. Hopefully. <laughs> Why do I think the bone season was Hopefully. set in like medieval times? Like literally you started speaking and I was like, <laughs> what the hell? Like literally the first words you said were in 2059 and I said, Oh, I thought it was like a Renaissance book. <laughs> that like, I kind of did too. I don't too. know why I like because there's nothing about the cover that inherently makes me feel like it should be a period piece. That makes me want to instant. Yeah. Not that I like do I want to read Samantha Shannon books because I do want to read Samantha Shannon books. Uh, that makes me want to read that book instantly. It like and I hate to pull this comparison, and I hate to pull this comparison. But it see it gives a little sounds like a little bit like Crescent City vibes. Of just being, like, mm. fantasy in a urban... Which is not... Crescent City isn't the only book that does fantasy in urban settings. But it just... Something about the way you described it. Oh, interesting. I'm... I'm the, yeah. I, it, so, it sounds like... I don't know. If, if I, like... I'm surprised... Like, okay, what am I trying to say? I'm, like, I know there's a lot of hype about the book, but I'm surprised there's not mm. more. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it sounds like a really like modern like thing that people would yeah i mean the know. fourth book came out this year there's gonna be seven books in this right. season in the series total <gasps> that's um, oh my god yeah it's okay. not done she's gonna be publishing this for a while um i need to get which is going. really exciting <laughs> and the amount yeah. of like great press and like reviews on the newest book that came out the mime order people loved the fourth book like they love the people that love this series go hard for this series i've had people up my butt for a year trying to get me to read this series and i (laughs) bought it i own every single book and the pre-novella um i need to read it (laughs) i'm excited that you started it i feel like a lot of people have read priory and that's kind of, mm-hmm. like, where they started and stopped with Samantha Shannon. So I don't think that it's, like, lack of hype because the books aren't good. I think it's just people haven't read them. Mm. Which is a shame. I mean, yeah. I'm the, I am that person. <laughs> I haven't read it. <laughs> uh, I just looked on, I, I did a quick Google search, and uh, the main character is demisexual. So that's Ooh. exciting. Yeah, Lots of exciting. demisexual representation today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's what I'm attempting to read anyway. Wow! <laughs> Look at us go! Um, thank you so much for listening to this episode. We made it to the end of yet another one. Um, and like we said at the beginning, this is the second to last of season one. Uh, but don't worry, you can check in in two weeks for our last episode of season one to find out all about our break um and you can stay up to date on our instagram at books on the brain pod while you're over there if you've made it to the end of this episode you should comment on our most recent post the open notebook with writing emoji that seems to be the one we use Mm -hmm. for all our book reports 
Uh, we mm-hmm. love when y'all engage on our Instagram posts. It mm-hmm. makes us do a little happy dance. Um, and we are ending next uh, on our next episode, which will be in two weeks. Um, otherwise, we've been putting out episodes every other week. Uh, and you can find us on all podcast platforms. If you rate, review, and subscribe, it really does help us out, uh, and we would very much appreciate it. You can also go ahead and find us on our own socials. I am at Deirdre Rose Morgan on Instagram and TikTok. I'm at d.j.books on TikTok and on Instagram. I am at Carly Rikashi on Instagram and at Library of Carly on TikTok. And that is it for this episode. We will chat to you in the next one. Bye. Good call. Bye.